Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. I'm Ayan Shirwa. Accent of Women would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and recognize their unceded sovereignty. You would have noticed that I opened today's program with an acknowledgement of country. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know that an acknowledgement of country is a statement performed at the beginning of public events. Acknowledgements are not compulsory, but for those who choose to do them, it is a mark of respect to the true custodians of this land. But what do we mean when we make statements like sovereignty was never ceded? This week, we bring you a panel discussion about sovereignty, treaty and constitutional recognition. The panel was organised by Allies Decolonising, a group of non-Aboriginal people who actively support and promote Aboriginal sovereignty. The panellists include Lydia Thorpe, a Gunai Gunjamara woman living on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne's north. Paula Bala, a Wemba Wemba and Gunjamara woman living on Kulin country. And rounding up the panel is Crystal McKinnon, a Yamaji woman who lives and works on Kulin country. The panel facilitator is Claire Land. Claire is a non-Aboriginal person living on Kulin Nation land. Lydia, um, could you let us know where where Treaty is at currently in Victoria? Because there is a, a number of processes that have been gone through in a multi-step kind of you know process towards treaty negotiations. So where are we at, at the moment? Uh, so the 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 Treaty Commission has announced the establishment of a First Peoples Assembly uh, and. As part of the First Peoples Assembly, there are 12 um, designated seats or reserved seats. Those 12 seats belong to registered Aboriginal parties. So um, currently, over the last 12 years, um, the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council, who determines who is a RAP and who isn't, um, have come up with 12 registered Aboriginal parties. So it's taken 12 years. Um, there are 31 seats in total and the remainder of those seats goes out to what they are calling an Aboriginal vote. So an Aboriginal role will be established and people will be campaigning and vying to have a seat at the First Peoples Assembly. Um, so that's, that's, you know, there's so many things wrong with that in terms of, do, am I going into that part too, Claire, or just yeah. where it's at? Um, so the issues that um, many Aboriginal people have, every, many traditional owners have in Victoria is that we have 38 nations across the state. They have language, they have culture, they have clan groups. And they've been recognised for, you know, decades. Um, if everyone's seen the Aboriginal Victorian language map, they're all on that. Um, no, they're not all registered Aboriginal parties. And that's for various reasons. Some choose not to be. Some have been denied registered Aboriginal party status. 
And so what it ultimately means is there are 21 nations or clan uh, language groups that don't have reserved seating and who may be vying for a seat via this Aboriginal voting process. The Aboriginal voting process includes um, interstate Aboriginal people who've lived here for three years. So that could outnumber traditional owners in Victoria. Um, if we look at Wurundjeri country, they will be up against 10 individual people vying for a seat and they will have one reserved seat. Uh, if we look at Gunai Kurnai country, there are five seats. Gunai Kurnai have one reserved seat and mainly Gunai Kurnai people live in Gippsland. So it could mean that five Gunai Kurnai people get on this assembly, which doesn't make it fair for the many uh, nations or language groups that should have a seat. Our position since before I became an MP, during, uh, during my time as an MP, and even after being an MP, has always been, we have to have everybody represented at the outset of this treaty process. And, um, you know, the, the work of the First Peoples Assembly is to establish the treaty negotiation framework. If we don't have all of those uh, language groups and nations at the establishment of that framework, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. Um, so that's where it's at. Uh, and I, with the Victorian Traditional Land Justice Group and the 21 language groups and nations, are looking at a legal process to injunct the current treaty process, which is hot off the press here tonight. Um, so I'm sure the Treaty Commissioner or the Treaty Commissioner won't be too happy to hear that when she does. Um, but yeah, we, we just, you know, in terms of the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, you know, our law, our culture should be recognised. And the RAP process is a government process. You, to become a member of the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council, you have to be appointed by the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. So Victorian government may as well just go and do a treaty with themselves. If they're going to choose who sits on the Heritage Council, who then chooses who becomes a RAP, then that's not how we want to do this, you know, this process. We want it to be fair. We want everyone to have a say. Um, and 38 nations, everyone knows who they are. We don't need to go to an expensive vote. They've, they've started advertising for VPS five positions you know, $80,000 positions for Aboriginal people, which we need, we need those jobs, but we can save that money and put it into better use to build the capacity of all of our people to have a say in the process. So, Paula and Crystal, you've been keen observers of these processes, um, though not directly involved. Um, would either of you like to comment on what interests you or troubles you in regards to the treaty process? Um, thanks, Claire. Um, and thanks, Lydia. Um, that's really great to hear that there's a legal process in, in place. Um, like Lydia said, I find so much of it um, 
problematic because observing the, the initial gatherings um, that were conducted in the city and, and some around the state, um, I kept hearing um, Lydia and I kept hearing the Thorpe family and Aunty Marge calling for the inclusion of elders and elders' voices that was continually um, ignored and disrespected and also for the voices of family groups and clan groups to be respected and, and it wasn't there. Um, so at Mundani Balak, we'd often be huddled around a computer watching the live stream <laughs> because they were live streamed um, to community that couldn't attend. Um, and I suppose that's an attempt by the commission to appear to be transparent. But again, I think that's also problematic. Um, another thing I think that, and I'm, I feel like I'm complicit in, in being a Guru person from country Victoria, um, as a Wemboemba woman and a, and a Gunishmara woman, that I'm in the city and so much of these conversations and dialogue happens here because, you know, we're Mel Melbourne-centric um, and I, my mum lives up home on country, my whole family does. I've got very few, a few cousins in Melbourne, but the majority are up home. And I worry about their ability to participate in these conversations. Um, I think the elder gatherings that um, were organised, you know, um, by, the, by your group, Lydia, um, were the first opportunities for my mum and elders in my family to be involved. So that really concerns me as a community member first. Um, in another sense, like politically, and I guess as an artist who gets the opportunity to present work publicly, and I'm fortunate I get to be heard publicly and I get to write and be published and, um, you know, working at the university gives me the opportunity to speak to, you know, audiences like yourselves. Um, but I really fear for this corporate and governmental approach to what is essentially cultural business and should be cultural business. That, you know, treaty, for, for me, I think should be conducted on country in a circular um, designed with elders leading up, with children present, with family providing food, with people being equal, um, instead of this process of, you know, this panel format that's very corporate and very separate from, you know, community ways of doing things. And that, that worries me. Um, so I think that cultural processes are being overridden. And... I think there's also a lot of money and there's a lot of um, grooming of community members to participate through um, gifts and, and funds to participate. And I'm really worried about the amount of money that's been spent on advertising for this campaign. It just feels like Recognise, which celebrities and footballers were used to brand. You know, they literally get stamped with a letter. I, it's not that far from... <laughs> the way our people were branded during, you know, the initial violent, um, you know, colonisation and genocidal practices of branding us with breastplates. It, it feels like that to me. Um, so I worry about the advertising process. I think it's very clever and slick. It makes people feel good about themselves. I think it makes settlers and white people perhaps feel good about themselves if they're supporting something that looks positive. Um, so I think, you know, we really, um, we need to be very critical thinkers. And, and the other thing that I think isn't known more broadly 
outside of our communities is that we resist each other. And sometimes that gets forgotten that, you know, it becomes about a black versus white, white Aboriginal versus non-Aboriginal people. But we resist our own mob all the time and disagree with each other. And often it's women who have to do it. So I think that um, it's easy to dismiss angry black women. <laughs> I'm proud to be one. I'm proud I was raised by angry black women because um, it's, a, it's a respectful energy. It's not a destructive one. Yeah. yeah, and it's disappointing that there's um, could be a missed opportunity to get something right, which people have been fighting for for a long time. And to me, I just don't understand how... Like, it's not a treaty to me if it's not with individual nations and clan groups represented. Like, it's just those people are not a part of that treaty-making process. They're not involved in that treaty. And I just can't get past that aspect of it and that, as Paula said, there's so much money going into this and it does start to feel like it is a new recognised campaign in the long, you know, you know, from reconciliation movement and just kind of a new government policy in order to appease the blacks and get us all in line. And it's just... I just don't... It's just... If it's supposed to be a real process involving the state and different clan groups, then why don't they just do that? You know, yeah. um, you know. And as a interstate person living in Victoria as well, you know, it, I would never vote in those um, <laughs> elections. Hey, you're eligible. I'm eligible. <laughs> but I would never vote in those elections and I don't um, understand why anyone from interstate would exercise that right given to them by the state um, because it's not their right and it's not an Indigenous practice to do that, to vote in those ways for people to represent when they're not your people. It doesn't make any sense. Um... It just doesn't make any sense unless you see it. <laughs> if you're trying to look, I think if you're trying to look at it as like in a genuine way, it just doesn't make sense. But if you look at it in a way that it's just another government policy, then it starts to make more sense. Yeah. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Woman. On today's program, we've been listening to a panel discussion about Aboriginal sovereignty treaty and constitutional recognition. You can listen back to this episode as a podcast later in the week. We now return to the show as Lydia explains what treaty can represent. I see treaty as an end to the war that was declared on us in 1788. We've, We've never ceded sovereignty, we've never stopped resisting this invasion. So I see treaty, and I, I was really excited when, you know, treaty came to town. Um, I see it as an end to our suffering, an end to our people being killed in prison at the hands of the police, our children from being stolen, and our land from being raped and pillaged the way it is. I think treaty can be the ultimate peacemaker, not just for us, but for you, because it's about saving what 
country we have left, what water we have left, but also um, allowing us to live in peace and, and economically benefit like everybody else does in this country uh, and share our knowledge about how we can care for this country better than it's, you know, better than um, it is currently. So, yeah, it's, it's an end to the war. Um, and I would like to see as part of the negotiation, you know, if we are 3% of the population, then we want 3% of the stolen wealth that goes on in this country. So 3% of the GDP would be nice. We could negotiate that. Um, but, you know, we don't want handouts. We don't want welfare. We want to self-determine our own destiny. And I think treaty ultimately can, can look like that if we do it right. No one should be left behind. And in this current process, you know, I know with all my heart my people in the Latrobe Valley won't vote. And I'd be very surprised if any one of my mob in the Latrobe Valley even put their hand up to be a candidate because they are the community that have the highest removal of children rates. You know, they're, they're, they're dying from living beside the um, power stations. So that community there is struggling to survive and, and they shouldn't be left out of this just because, you know, they're our, our, um, you know, one of our poorest communities in this state. Um, so Paola um, and Crystal as well, each of you have ongoing work and practices in regards to sovereignty and how it's lived out by yourselves and others. Um, Paola, could you talk about your PhD research, perhaps, and how that relates to sovereign struggles? Um, yeah, and the other thing I want to say with that is um, I'm really honoured to be the inaugural Lisa Belair um, Indigenous Research Scholar at, at VU. Um, my, my project is currently titled, sometimes it changes the title, but it's currently titled Disrupting Artistic Terranalias and it's platforming the ways that Aboriginal women um, disrupt colonial and patriarchal narratives, especially in public space. So it's focused on work in the arts and community um, and activism. And I'm doing that because, like you know, I said in my bio, um, I was raised in a matriarchal family and um, so that's my position, you know. Um, we were having a little chat about PhDs, Crystal, me, um, Lydia earlier, and where we're up to with ours and talking academically, you know, we talk about these standpoints um, as Aboriginal people. And so it's kind of like I've tried to take a moment in the work that I've been doing over, like, 25 years um, and younger in community, in Echuca, like, I, from the age of 13, I had to... Um, you know, do stuff at the co-op and um, mum cooked meals and my nan worked at the keeping place and my auntie was an educator and you had your role and you had your duties to do and I was organising underage discos um, up there and um, um, doing all sorts of things, whatever was required, you know, and um, a Koori fashion parade with auntie Nisi Morgan up there in Shepparton and um, all sorts of things. So it's... It's taking a moment from that work and stopping to appreciate the efforts of the matriarchs around me and the ones that have gone before and to recognise their work. 
because Aboriginal women's work is often overlooked and it's very easy to heroicise male, you know, leaders. Um, I'm not going to criticise patriarchy within our community. I've got a lot of beautiful uncles and great uncles who are very important in my upbringing and my kids. Um, but I, you know, my father was absent. Um, my mum raised us on her own and um, my nan had to do the same thing and so it's taking a moment to recognise that work and really platform the work of Aboriginal women artists, um, how brave they are, how courageous they are, how fearless they are in speaking out against injustices against us. And there's been injustices against our bodies since, you know, since the invasion, since 1788, especially sexual violence against Aboriginal women. Um, you know, the, the stealing and murdering of our, our children the use of Aboriginal children's bodies for labour in this country, particularly young girls, in domestic situations that predominantly white women benefited from. And so the work also is a critique on, um, on white feminism um, and making aware that, you know, everyone was complicit in violence against us. And so a lot of Aboriginal women talk about these things in their art and... You know, you can communicate a lot through art that you sometimes can't in other ways. And it's so immediate, it's emotional. You get people in a gallery, you know, they're kind of stuck in there for as long as they'll stay. And um, you can get them to engage with things and just sit, sit with it, you know. So it's celebrating that and um, it's a creative project. So I'm in the middle of writing up the exegesis, looking at all of this women's, you know, these women's work and... Um, celebrating it and then I'll do an exhibition in an attempt to respond um, and get back to my own visual practice. But it's, it's really all about so celebrating our, our sovereignty and how that sits w within our bodies despite what happened to our bodies and what continues to happen. And, um, you know, if I can use any, you know, art opportunity to talk about the rates of Aboriginal children being stolen in this state right now and the terror that that brings on and the fear and seeing, you know, my auntie trying to raise her grandchildren and keep them in the family and many others. It's, it's a very real experience. You know, we're not just talking about statistics. So I try to make what seem like abstract statistics real, you know, in the, in the visual storytelling, yeah. And does that... Um, um, Crystal, does... Does Paola's sort of, you know, discussion there about sovereignty and the body, does that resonate with your work? Because that's what your PhD to yeah. some degree is about, isn't it? Um, yeah, my PhD work was looking at, um, I guess, notions of Indigenous sovereignty and trying to really think through what that meant because um, it is very different to the Western legal definitions which only kind of think about it in terms of land and territory um, and it is about that for blackfellas but it is more than that too like it's also about you know ancestral ancestral connections you know um, beliefs kin, kinship structures extended families um, the land the trees you know I think you can see how that in the Japarong protests recently and the fight for country there, you know, and the way people are talking about what the trees mean and um, 
not only in terms of a symbolic of culture, but how those trees are them in that connection. And so I was trying to think through about what, yeah, what sovereignty meant if we talk about it in terms of living in Indigenous bodies and what that then um, can tell us about history, I guess, um, and protest and literature and arts. Um, yeah, so that's what I was looking at for that. So, yeah, it is, it is um, similar to Paolo. It's funny because Paolo's supervisor, Ani Tracy Bunder, is, um, was one of the people that I read who, was, um, who gave me the idea for my project too, so that's probably why there are similarities in terms of embodiment of sovereignty and what that means. And also, I guess, in doing that work too, it um, helped, you know, it's a constant thing about when you live on someone else's country and when you do acknowledgements and when you are yeah, living, working, benefiting from that, how do you um, enact with that sovereignty as a sovereign person? What do you do? What do you give back? You know, what, how, do you, how do you live? You know? And that's something also that non-Indigenous people, I think, would be... It's an interesting... Not interesting, it's a... It is interesting, but it's also, I think it's a political imperative, I guess. You know, people, everyone's done an acknowledgement of country, but what does that mean when we acknowledge country? And how do we live those words? And how do we ensure that we're living with other people's sovereignty and in, in ways that honour their land and their territories? In terms of non-Indigenous people, I think uh, one thing I think benefits non-Indigenous people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where there is a treaty, is legitimacy and identity um, in that the treaty, under the treaty, you're either a person of the land, um, you're Māori, um, or you're a person of the treaty. So all non-Aboriginal people, all non-Māori people in, in, in New Zealand have the identity of being people of the treaty. So I think that non-Aboriginal people have a lot to gain, a huge, we probably have the most, a lot to gain from from the treaty. Um, well, yeah, but I just want, yeah, just want to throw that in there. Well, the treaty's being negotiated on the behalf of the people that, that the state represents. Like, it's not a treaty with government, it's a treaty, it's supposed to be a treaty with the people, you know, so it kind of, I think the way that it's, um, sorry, I jumped on that because I've been thinking about it a lot, but, you know, the way that it's constructed in, it's like this, it's, the, it's Aboriginal business and it's over there, but it's not, it's, it's supposed to be a partnership between people, you know, so there is stuff that non-Indigenous people can do, like, you know, when we're talking about, or when Lydia's talking about the people that aren't represented, you can ring your MP and use your voice to say, why aren't these people represented, you know? And that was Crystal McKinnon, ending on ways the community can make treaty more inclusive. Accent of Woman is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ayan Shirwat.